Word. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one in the Pew Bible in front of you. And turn over with us to Joshua chapter 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of, your, of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery, slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before all us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. Well, we do have kingdom kids today. So all of our kiddos who are four years old through second grade can head to the foyer this morning and join our Kingdom Kids workers. And they're going to have a chance to go and learn and worship at their level, right next door in our education building. <laughs> was that a loud script? That was my kid, I bet. <laughs> oh, you're, this is one of ours. Uh, and then don't forget to pick them up after church. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> well, today we are... Um, Picking back up in our sermon series that is walking us through our Bible reading plan. Um, and we've already covered the first half of the story of Joshua. And today we're going to cover the second half. Uh, Joshua was one of Moses' most faithful servants and helped Moses as they left Egypt and wandered in the desert, and he was one of the spies chosen to go into the new promised land that God had promised them. That's why we call it the promised land. You probably already knew that. And as they go into the promised land, um, the spies realize that, you know, it's not going to be a cakewalk to take the land God promised them. There was going to be opposition, and it looked pretty fierce, and they're human eyes. And Joshua was one of two. He and Caleb came back and said, no, the Lord has promised us this land. We can go and take it in his power. And because of his faithfulness, he was one of very few out of that uh, group of Israelites who wandered the desert to make it into the promised land. And because he was basically Moses' right-hand man in many ways, in addition to Aaron, uh, he was God's man for the job when Moses died. And so he picks back up and begins to lead Israel as they begin to conquer the promised land. Uh, they w were given a promise, but they had to act on that promise. And that's something that we can learn from them today. God gives us promises, but we have to be faithful to him and act on those promises he has given us. And Joshua is doing 
an incredible job uh, leading them through that, but it's not without some roadblocks along the way. If you have read through Joshua, you know that. They, they ran into some problems, some internal problems, problems with idolatry and sin. And, of course, Joshua's getting to the end of his leadership here. He's about to die. We're told several times he's old. Several times in the last two chapters of Joshua, we're told he's near the end. His life's about to give out. And as he is preparing his people for life without him, he gives these speeches that I think are prophetic words from God. Uh, This is kind of an important little note, and then we'll pray. But a prophecy is not simply a foretelling of the future. That's a kind of prophecy. But being a prophet also means you speak forth. The words of God. And that's what a prophet would do. Let me tell you what God has to say. And that was the role of a prophet throughout Israel's time. Not just telling you what will happen in the future, but also telling you what does God have to say here and now. That's the role of a prophet as well. And, and so in this way, Joshua is playing this role as a prophet. He's hearing from God and God has given him a message for his people as he's about to leave this role of leadership. And what he has to say to them, I believe, is also a word to us. That I personally, and maybe you will too, uh, find challenging, convicting even. So before we turn to it, let's pause and pray together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to this moment in your word to unpack what you have said to us. Through those who have been faithful to write it down and transcribe it over the years. We have before us a trustworthy source of your words to us. And so God, we want to hear them as your words. We want to experience them as your words. And we want to take and live out the word that you speak over us today through your scriptures. To that end, Father, I ask that you would be at work in our hearts and minds as we sit here this morning, as we're active participants in this message, that we'd be thinking about what does this mean for how I live? What does this mean for us as a congregation? how we go about our business that you've called us to. And that we might leave from this place our hearts encouraged, our minds filled up, and our hands and feet ready to fulfill your instructions to us. That's the work of your Spirit in our lives, and we pray that he would do just that. And in all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've heard this said, I'm sure you have too, it's kind of an old saying, you know, life is made up of choices. Where you are today, your choices has, have led you to that in many ways. Some are big choices. Some are big choices. Some of those big choices are choices like, you know, what are you going to do for a living? What's your occupation in the world? Who are you going to marry? That's perhaps one of the biggest decisions we make this side of heaven, second only to receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's a huge decision. Where are we going to live? In what house, in what town, on what street? These are big decisions. Life's also made up of some small decisions that, you know, matter a lot less than those. You know, what are we going to wear today? Where are we going to eat lunch today? I'm excited because we're eating Mexican food and I don't have to go far to get it. And so that's a thrill. So you want to stick around for that for sure. But life's made up of some small decisions. Life's all, as I was thinking about this, life's also made up of some really difficult decisions. Uh, that difficult decisions I think of is when you got way more than two options. Uh, or, or, or you have, um, that's my third point. My second point is difficult decisions are when you have two really good options or two really bad options. How do you pick between the two? It can be very difficult to make that decision. 
when you've got two really good options or maybe two really bad options and you don't have any others and you have to pick from them. But there's a third kind of decision out of four decisions that we may face in this world. And, this, and the third is that decisions can be confusing or complicated. That's when we have too many options. Like, for, for instance, I was at the store the other day and Marsha had on the list tomato sauce. Well, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's a lot of different kinds of tomato sauce. So this happens every time I go to the store. I got to call Marsha and I got to say, now, what do you mean by tomato sauce? They've got small cans. They've got big cans. They've got medium cans. They've got cans without salt. They've got cans with oregano. They've got organic. They've got regular. I don't know what this means. And I get very confused. Too many choices. It gets way too complicated. And I have to call and ask for some clarification. But we all face that. We face choices in life where there's not just two that may be difficult to choose from. There's lots. But I want to talk about this morning from what we see at the end of Joseph's or at the end of Joshua's life, a different kind of decision. It's actually, I think, a very dangerous kind of decision. And it is the assumed decision. When we assume we have made a decision that we are committed to, when in fact we have not. It's an assumed decision. You might even say it's an assumed commitment without any actual commitment. Joshua gives this farewell address in chapters 23 and 24. In chapters 23, Joshua gives these warnings along with promises from God. As he's about to die, he's gathered the Israelites together. He's reminding them of the victories God gave them in the land that he allotted them. In the first five verses. In Joshua chapter 23, in the next few verses, he warns them, don't associate with those who remain in the land. They had moved in to take the land, but all the people who currently live there uh, weren't all wiped out. That was the instruction by God. We've talked about that. These folks were uh, not only worshiping other gods, but even to the point of sacrificing their own children in the worship of other gods. They were engaged in some very immoral behavior. And God knew that this land that he had chosen for the Israelites could not be inhabited with these folks in place. And so he called the Israelites to remove them so that they would not be tempted to live as they lived. Joshua's reminding them about all of this. He reminds them that it was God who gave them over to the Israelites. God had given them the land and everything in it. And so it was to God that they owed their allegiance. Joshua warns them if they fail to avoid becoming like those in the land, then God would no longer be with them. Joshua reminded them that God, however, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. God is trustworthy. One of my favorite verses in that whole chapter, maybe in all of Joshua, chapter 23 Middle of verse 14, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all of God's good promises that the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Joshua 23, verse 14. So Joshua's just pouring his heart out, just reminding them of these things. And then Joshua kind of puts on his prophet hat, and now he begins to speak forth the word of God in Joshua 24. He begins to tell, speak to them as if God were the one who were giving him the words. This is God speaking through Joshua to the people. 
And one of the things I notice as I'm reading through Joshua chapter 24 is there's a lot of I statements made by God. You can scan it and see it pretty easily. He's giving them a powerful and prophetic history lesson in which he is speaking forth the words of God. And God is saying through Joshua, I took, I gave, I assigned, I sent, I afflicted, I brought, I destroyed, I delivered. Lots of I statements God's making. What's the point? Well, the point is pretty obvious. He's saying, I've been faithful to you. I have done this. You haven't done this. I have done this on your behalf. I didn't. You didn't get yourself out of Egypt. I got you out of Egypt. You didn't provide for yourself in the uh, wilderness. I provided for you. You didn't make it across the Jordan River on dry land just as Moses and the Israelites before you made it across the Red Sea on dry land. You didn't do that. I did that. You didn't conquer Jericho on your own wisdom. You remember they were marching around the city walls? No general would have come up with that idea. That's a bad battle plan. If you're not God... But God came up with that. He knew how to get his will and his message across. So he says, I did that. I gave you Jericho. I've given you this land. I've helped you conquer these people. He's saying, it was me, the Lord your God. So he says in verse 13 of chapter 24 of Joshua, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil. I gave you cities on which you did not build. For you to live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. He's building his case for why it would be incredibly foolish of them to turn their backs on this God and turn to gods of the Amorites. Those living still in the land. Or turn back to the gods of their forefathers before Abraham was called From his home country. It would be foolish to do that. But if we do. God also lets them know the consequences. If they don't follow God. So now Joshua comes back onto the scene. Speaking his words. And he gives them this challenge. He calls the question so to speak. He says listen. Here's the decision you must make. You have to choose. Only you can make that choice. Joshua doesn't make a decision for everyone. Wouldn't that be great? Have you ever tried that before? It don't work. I would love to make a decision for other people. It does not work that way. Because I think I'm right most of the time. I know know you're not like that. I mean, you guys are so much better than me. You, you You wouldn't do that. But Joshua doesn't do that. He doesn't make a decision on behalf of all of Israel. He says, now you gotta choose. Who will you choose? Will you choose the ancestor, the, the gods of our ancestors? Will you go back to that? Are you going to choose these gods that the people who are left here are worshiping and sacrificing their children to? Are you going to choose that? Or are you going to choose this God who called Abraham, gave him Isaac, gave him a covenant, a promise that was sure, brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and has given you victory thus far. Which God are you going to choose? He's building the case. It's pretty obvious which one you should choose. I think it is so obvious to them that they can't help but say, well, of course, of course, 
course we choose God. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, it stands in for the personal name of God, Yahweh, which they would not write or utter because they found it too holy to say the name of their God. And so they would write it in capital letters, L-O-R-D. Of course we choose the Lord, our God, who did all that stuff for us, whose every promise has come true, and so we can trust that every promise he's made in the future is going to come true, of course. It's an assumed decision, not backed up with commitment. Of course I love God. Of course I follow God. Of course, you know, I, I thought about this like, it's kind of like, you know, you know, you, you get married, you say those vows, and you say, of course I still am married and love my wife and, and fulfilling those covenant vows. Actually, I brought them. You remember your vows? I bet there was something like this. Listen to this. And you always start with the groom. Men got to go first. That's your job, fellas. Groom, do you take your bride to be your wedded wife to live together in marriage? Yeah, I did that. Check mark. Do you promise to love her? Now we're getting into some uh, trepidatious waters here. Comfort her. Uh, well, you know, comfort. Come on. I mean, really? She's crying over a commercial. What do you want me to do with that? I don't know. You can Not my wife. That's, you know, some of yours. I'm not speaking personally, you understand. Honor and keep her. For better or worse. Better, yeah, worse. That's, that's tricky. Richer or poor. Well, when you have kids, it's all downhill. In sickness and health. And some of you wives are thinking, yeah, but you, have you seen my husband when he's sick? Come on. Come on. This is it's too much. Just relax. You'll live. Uh, forsaking all others and be faithful. And her. What I'm saying is we assume something, that a decision we made a long ago, we, we assume it. And that's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous to assume that because we made a decision on our wedding day that we're still fulfilling those wedding vows. Understand this is just an illustration, of course. Just as it is dangerous to assume, well, you know, I made a commitment to be a member of a church, but, you know, what does that really mean? I, we, actually, we actually have a membership covenant. I brought it with me. Oddly enough, it's got more words in it than the covenant of marriage vows. I thought about that. I was like, look, look at the difference, y'all. Look, look at it. You've got to put this in small print. I can put this in big print. This is wedding. This is church, okay? Maybe that should tell us something. I don't know. But I can't read all this. This is way, this will take way too long. But there's all sorts of commitments in there. Have you looked at that lately? Do you fulfill that? You're a church member. If you are, yeah, I made that decision a long time ago. But those aren't even the most dangerous of the dangerous assumptions we make when we come to making decisions. The most dangerous of all the dangerous assumptions we can make when it comes to decision making is, am I following the Lord? Of course I'm following the Lord. Of course I follow God. Of course I believe in God. Of course. Do we? And this is what Joshua is pushing back on them. He's saying, look, fear the Lord, serve him with faithfulness. This is verse 14. Throw away the gods of your ancestors worshipped. Get rid of all those gods that you found when you came into the promised land. Choose for yourselves this day, middle of verse 14. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He says, for me, my house, we're going to serve the Lord, but you've got to make a decision. Who will you serve? And, and we read it. We read the confidence 
of his fellow Israelites when they said in verse 16, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve all other gods. I mean, they just heard all this stuff. They heard, they heard the whole history. They heard all the I statements that we covered in the first two, or in, in chapter 23 and 24 so far. They heard all that. So they say, of course, far be it from us. And so, you know, what was Joshua going to do with that? Great. Hey, let's go. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. No. Joshua sees what I hope we might see, which is that an assumed commitment without actual commitment is one of the most dangerous decisions we can make. Where do we see that? Jump down to verse 23. The people have said, we will serve the Lord over and again. Most recently in verse 21. In 22, Joshua says, okay, you said it. You're going to serve the Lord. But you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. You're saying that. Here it is, black and white. Here's the marriage covenant. Here's the church covenant. Here's your warranty information. Whatever. You made a commitment. You, you guaranteed it. But he knew something about their commitment was lacking. They assumed that they had made a decision, and yet their lives did not show it. Look at verse 23. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you, and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now what that tells me is, they said, yes, yes. Of course, far be it from us. And yet, what's in their house? foreign gods where's their heart it has not been yielded to the lord let me tell you so i love about the bible this is thousands of years old but let me tell you something that cuts deep for each of us at least it should you should be asking yourself the question okay yeah i said i follow the lord i remember making that decision i remember being baptized i remember that stuff but am i really doing it Because, listen, showing up on Sunday morning is super important. I will never downgrade the importance of worshiping with your church family on Sunday morning. But this can't be it, y'all. This is one to two hours out of your week. This cannot be the entirety of your faith. Imagine just eating one meal a week. My goodness. Is... uh, Like the way Dr. Tony Evans said, it says, You can be married and not not go home at night. That's possible. You can be a Christian and not show up to worship. But don't think the relationship won't be damaged. Here's the point. So we often assume a commitment to the Lord that our lives do not bear out. The way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the things we think about, the decisions we make show otherwise. And it's good to take stock of that from time to time and ask, Lord, how am I really doing? Are there some areas in my life that are just have gone off the rails and I haven't been paying attention? It's the prayer of the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord. Look at my heart. See my way. Show me where I'm off. 
We got to have that happen sometimes. Maybe a lot of times. Maybe every Sunday when there's an invitation. Maybe that frequently every day when you sit and pray, God, show me. I don't want to assume I've made a commitment to follow you when there's areas of my life that are so glaringly obvious that they are far from you. Help me to see it, God. And they just couldn't see it. Of course we're going to follow God. Far be it from us. Why you got idols in your house? Why is your heart somewhere else? Now, it's a bit of an odd thing for us to think about because we don't, we don't have, you know, idols in the same way they did in a physical sense often. We don't have some carving out of wood or metal that we put on our shelf and we pray to hoping that that thing represents a God somewhere that's going to answer our problems. That's not most of our experiences. Does not mean we don't have idols, though. Just think about this with me for a second. What is an idol? An idol is a thing you place your hope and trust in to provide for you what you need. In that context, anything can be an idol. Anything you love more than God can be an idol. Anything you put first in your life before God can become an idol. Even really good things like family can become an idol. Listen, if I want to serve my family best, I'm going to have to put God first. But if I shift gears and say, whatever my family wants, whatever they want, whatever my kids want, I'm doing that. And then if there's a little room for God at the end, wonderful. Now families become an idol. That's one of Satan's favorite tricks, by the way. He loves to take good things, turn them into God things in our life, for which become idols that put space between us and our God. He loves to do that. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book. He doesn't have to just tempt us with bad things. That's too obvious. He will tempt us with good things, turning them into God things, which means they become idols. So here, here's a way to think of it. What, what are all your hopes and dreams wrapped up in? Financial security, being popular at school, success in the classroom or in the field, retirement with enough money in the bank to live how you want. Any of that can be an idol. When, you, when that's your hopes and dreams, when that's your wish, what do you dream about? When you're just sitting in the chair, driving down the road, what are the things that you are just hoping will come true? And you know, if that thing happens in my life, my life will be perfect. I'll have it made. It'll be great. No problems. That thing can become an idol. Same is true for nightmares. What's the thing that could happen in my life that would ruin me forever? That can become an idol. My goodness, if my bank account hits zero and I can't pay my bills, my life's over. Why? Because that was my life. If I lose all my friends and I'm no longer popular at school, and then my life is over. Why? Because that was your life, right? If I lose my job, my status that I have at work, my life is over. Why? Because that had become your life. Anything that is an idol is not happy with second place. Idols push for first place. They push to remove God as first and foremost in your life. So even though they struggle with that thousands and thousands of years ago, we still struggle with that today. And the question becomes, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve these idols? Or are you going to serve God? Will you serve God when it costs you something? 
When it costs you your money or it costs you your time or it costs you some relational capital that someone finds out at work you're a Christian, now they think you're weird. Reputation at work, that's more important than following God? That's, that's the hard question here. But here's the more difficult thing is we can't assume. It's a very dangerous thing to assume, yes, God is first and foremost in my life. Here's my challenge to you. Don't assume it. Ask him if it's true. Ask him. And that gets us to a part we jumped over. You may have noticed that. Starting in verse 19. It begins with, in verse 16, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It ends at the end of 18, We too will serve the Lord, because He is our God. But then Joshua says in verse 19, You're not able to serve the Lord. Like, that's not very comforting. Come on, Josh. I mean, hey, they're trying, right? I mean, they're they're trying. They're saying, yeah, we're, we're with you. We'll do it. We're on board. Let's make it happen. Joshua doesn't give them any comfort in their assumed decision to follow God. He says, you can't do it. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. What's he saying? He's saying God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. So an assumed decision to follow God means half my heart is God's and I just assume that's enough. I come on Sunday, I assume that's enough. I give 10% of my income to God, I assume that's enough. The 90% percent i do whatever I want with. Right? I mean, that's the deal, right? We struck with God. We give him 10. We do whatever else we want with the other 90. That's the deal, right? That's enough. And here we find Joshua saying, it's not enough. God wants all of you. That can be a very scary thing, I think. Let me put it this way. There is no trusting Jesus for salvation. And not trusting him to be Lord. He can't be just Savior. He's going to be Savior and Lord or he's neither. He's going to save you from sin and hell and make you righteous in the eyes of his Father and be the Lord of your life, or it's neither. And what we see happening here is the people assume their weak decision followed by half commitment was enough, and Joshua says you can't do it that way. You can't serve him that way. He's a jealous God. It's all or nothing. Now, that might seem a little off to us, like, oh, gee, goodness, God, relax, you know? Like, you know, don't we spend enough time together? Come on, just calm down, right? But if you get married, I mean, come on. You read, we read, we went over that whole vow thing. There's not much wiggle room in there. You can't be 10% married, y'all. You know this. You can't be a 10% parent. That was a commitment you made. Right? That's a decision you made. You're going to have kids. It's like it was an accident. No, there are no accidents. There are no accidents, right? In the vast majority of the cases, vast majority, it's a decision of your will. You had a kid. So what does that mean? It means you made a commitment. Can you be a parent 10% of the time? Nope. 
doesn't work that way. Let me tell you, you can't be a Christian 10% of the time either. Joshua is saying to the Israelites, you can't be a child of God 10% of the time. He wants all of you. Now just imagine your spouse said to you, you know what, I'm okay with 50%. I'm okay with 10%. I just need a little bit of your time to mow the yard and stuff, and then we're good. You do whatever you want. And what does that communicate to you? Does that sound like a healthy relationship? If your spouse only wants part of you, does that sound like a relationship you want to be in? Sure doesn't to me. So when God says, I'm a jealous God, I want all of you, it's actually a very loving statement. He is saying, I want the ugly parts too. Think about that. I want, I'm a jealous God. I want you to come to me with your heartaches, your frustrations, your anger. Yes, your sin. I want you to come with all of it. I want all of you, not just part of you. When you think about that like that, then it's like, wow. So God being a jealous God is actually quite a wonderful statement about his love towards us. That he wants all of us. But we have to decide. I think Joshua calls us to the same question. Who will you serve? Who will be your God? Who will you follow? And my encouragement to you is don't assume you've said yes once way back when and it's enough. Don't assume that you give 10% of your heart to God or even 50% of your heart to God and that that's that's enough. It's not. Who will you serve with all your heart? Who will you give all yourself to? And God wants all of us. One of the scariest passages of Scripture deals with assumed decisions. comes from the words of Jesus himself, and I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus says these words, and I think uh, in some ways they should at least make us pause and think. He goes after our assumed decisions, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, is he saying you've got to earn your way in? He's No. No, no, no. He's not saying you've got to earn your way in. What he's saying is your actions will prove your words true. That it's very easy to say, Lord, Lord. It's very easy to say, yes, of course. It's very easy to even say, yes, Jesus, save me. But our words will prove, or our actions will prove if those words were genuine and true. That's what he's saying. Many will say to me in verse 22 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did we not drive out demons? In your name did we not perform many miracles? What I hear him saying there is, Lord, didn't we show up to church on Sunday? Didn't we give our 10% tithe? Didn't I get baptized? Isn't that proof of 100% in? And Jesus says, no. When you add it all up, all of our lives will show Jesus says, then I will simply tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That, I know I'm saved. I don't want anybody to question their salvation unless they should. I want you to have confidence that the Lord has saved you. I want you to know that you know that you know that you are forgiven today, now, and forever. 
that heaven is your home, but what I fear is that some have made a half-hearted, slight commitment to the Lord as their Savior, but they have never asked Jesus to be their Lord. Their lives reflect it. They do not live as Jesus is in charge of their life in any way. I'm not saying we don't struggle, y'all. Saying the total picture of our lives does not show that God is in charge. We've still got idols on the bookshelf. Our hearts are not beating with His. Our heart rate gets up on everything else. But when I think about the Lord cold, that's what, that's what I think Jesus is talking about. That's the challenge from Joshua. And, and we've got to ask that question, who will we serve today? And we can't assume the answer is yes. So what do we do? I think we pray. It's one of many things we can do. We'll see in, in their lives they made a commitment. And then they followed it up with action. They actually had a whole ceremony where they, where they uh, go through and they go through the covenant. And they, they make, a, new, make a, a renewed commitment to the covenant that God had given them. We see that happening at the end of chapter 24. I don't know what that specifically looks like for you necessarily. For some it may be baptism. I've never been baptized. I've never professed my faith in that public way. And that's the decision you need to make. It may be coming down and just praying and asking God to rid your life of some idols that you know are there and they're getting in the way of your relationship with the Lord. I, I, like Joshua, I don't want to prescribe for you what you need to do or, or how you need to deal with the Lord. But I think it's worth asking that question. Have I assumed a commitment to him that I do not have, that my life does not bear out? And if so, what do I need to do about that? For some, it may be coming to the realization for the first time I never made Jesus my Lord, therefore he could never have been my Savior. Because it's a package deal, and I need to do both. Because you can't do one without the other. For some it may be, I am striving to serve the Lord, but i got to tell you, there's some things in my life that are just, man, they've got my heart, they've got my attention, and I need to set those aside. I need to repent of those, remind myself of the grace there is in Jesus, and let him be first and foremost in every area of my life. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, that, this invitation is for you. And if prayer is part of that, and I hope that it is, and if coming forward to pray is part of that, I would love to pray with you. So uh, Mark's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation, and let me close this in prayer. Father God, I find in, in Joshua's words... Uh, more than a challenge, I'm not sure how, else, how to put it, but a convicting question. Do you have all of me? Or am I holding back? And I want to be able to say that I'm not holding anything back. I think many of us want to say that here this morning, but we're a little unsure. So Holy Spirit, show us. Show us where our assumed commitment Is in some way endangering our life with you. That we would truly know where, where are those areas in our life where we need to confess, surrender. And for those here this morning that maybe they came assuming they were a Christian, but in some way your Holy Spirit has shown them that they're on the cusp of it, but they're not there yet. 
they would see to call on you to forgive them, to give them life eternal, and to be in charge of their life now. It's still a decision that they have yet to be yet to make. And today they would make it. Today would be the day of salvation. Father, deal with your people in ways that only you can. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus.